Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Air pollution causes an enormous illness burden, and it's been said that one in nine deaths, many of which are children, occur because of air pollution. Indeed, the World Health Organization is now saying that approximately 7 million people a year die from it. We need to discuss it. Elizabeth Haas is a psychiatrist in Nevada and is associated with the University of Nevada School of Medicine. She has also worked in areas of the impacts of climate change on mental health, and her activities include work with Al Gore and other climate change projects, including being a founding member of the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. Dr. Haas, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Let's begin with an overview. Please define for us what air pollution is, and if you can condense it a little bit. Yeah, it's a great question, actually, one that I didn't really know the answer to for a long time. What air pollution is are excess particles that are damaging that are put into the air by people. And starting with the Clean Air Act in 1973, the way that we've defined that is through six what are called criterion pollutants. And those include things like CO2, ozone, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, carbon monoxide, and lead. Those are really the main ones. But then also particulate matter, the little tiny particles that are produced when we burn carbon-based fuel. So that's how we define it, basically, by the six criteria pollutants of the EPA. Are some of these substances worse than others? When you study air pollution, you have to be quite specific about what are you studying exactly. The particulate matter is divided, as I think we've probably all seen in the news right now, into these particles that are 2.5 and 10. And so what's a PM 2.5? It's 2.5 microns big. And what's a PM 10? That's 10 microns. But you have to be quite specific about what you're studying. And the short version is that both physical and mental health damage has been shown for every single one of these kinds of particles. It does matter which one you're studying because nitrogen oxide and nitrogen dioxide, for example, have been associated with some things but not with others. Ozone has been associated with some things and not with others. Lead, as we know, has very particular cognitive effects, mostly been studied in association with child development and hasn't been really shown to cause damage in adults. You have to be a little bit specific, but the short answer is that every single one of the pollutants that we count has been associated with some form of pathology in the brain and in the body. Let's take a moment to look at in a more global perspective. It seems that sometimes air pollution seems to be more local than a widespread. Would people in different parts of our country, or certainly in the world, therefore be exposed to significantly different types of air pollution? And I guess attached to that, and I don't want to overcomplicate the question, what effect is there of being downwind from the pollution? How far do you have to be away to be safe, if, if at all? People have looked at it in a variety of different ways. Some of the studies look at how close you live to a highway. If you live within 1,800 feet of a highway, you're more likely to get exposed to a high level of particular matter. And other people have looked at how close do you live to a coal plant? Ultimately, 80% of the stuff that's in the air is coming from burning fuels, and we're all exposed to it. It doesn't make a difference if you live particularly close to these. You can also look up on purpleair.com and figure out what is the amount of particulate matter that you are breathing. When it rains, as simple as it sounds, when it rains, it cleans the air, but I think people forget that the pollution then goes into the ground and into the water, that's an, an equal after effect of all this pollution. Is that much of an of a issue as well? 
Certainly you can wash the particles out of the air from fires and things like that. In terms of removing lead from the air or other things that might actually persist in the groundwater, that's not going to be an issue. But if you're talking about carbon dioxide particles, they're going to be recycled and taken up into other, other compounds. When we breathe polluted air, it goes into our bodies, it goes in through our lungs. How does it therefore get to the rest of the body, to the brain and the other tissues, and what damages does it cause? It gets there a couple of ways. Just like when you get herpes simplex and it travels up in your nerves and then comes back out in the form of things like shingles later in life. Particle probably taken up by the nerves in the olfactory plate in the nose and also by the nerves in the lung and transported backwards up the nerves to the brain and uh, to neurons and to glia. Right? That's one way that particles get into the brain. The other way that they get is by being transported across capillary membranes, and they are transported across the blood-brain barrier. So they can get there a couple of ways, and in terms of the other organs of the body, very much across the vasculature. If someone moves out of a polluted area, they're now in an area where the air is relatively clean, will the body cleanse itself or do some of these materials stay for the long run or even permanently? Do we have any data on that? I don't think anybody has looked at that specifically as far as I'm aware. And what does happen is that the tiniest particles are taken up inside the cells. There are a variety of inflammatory reactions that happen at that point. Macrophages come in, other forms of cells come in to clean up the irritation that they cause. Whether they are eventually cleared, I'm just not sure that anybody has really looked at it. Just a question that popped into my mind. So does air pollution affect people differently at different ages? Do children react differently than older folks? Do we have any data on that? We definitely know a little bit about that. Is that they've got lungs, we've got lungs. They are just growing much faster, and 80% of their lungs develop in the first six years. And if you have things that are irritating the lungs during that process, you're going to have a lot more damage in terms of scarring and restriction of lung growth, you know. And and so that's one of the ways is that the, because they're growing so much more quickly, they don't grow as well or as healthily when they're exposed to air pollution. And they also just don't have the ability to clear it the way that we do. You know, their livers are not as sophisticated as ours, so they can't get rid of any sort of toxic damage quite as easily. Has medicine embraced the extent of this problem? Do you find that your residents or other colleagues just don't understand the, the real concern that the World Health Organization and the groups like your group are beginning to um, to bring to fore? Certainly the pulmonologists and the pediatricians understand very, very well the issue of air pollution in terms of children, the amount of morbidity and mortality to kids who live in bad environments, the South Bronx of New York being a really great example, you know, just profound. I think the general awareness that we're all breathing air, which is causing our brains to age rapidly and to have significant damage, this is not something that most people are aware of, and it's one of the reasons that I got interested in it. Sort of like, are you kidding me? Air pollution has the same impact on whether or not I get dementia as my ApoE44 allele and whether or not I'm obese and hypertensive and have diabetes. Why do I not know this? Why is this not on a list of risk factors for dementia? And so I think that's the part that people really, really don't understand. They don't understand how much neural inflammation is being caused on a regular basis by breathing. And they, they don't know that it's going to double their risk of stroke and double their risk of heart attack, all these kinds of things. And everybody is aware that when there's been a bad fire and they've breathed bad air for a while and a smog episode that they might have a headache, lungs and nose might be irritated. They don't understand that it's actually toxic to their brain and that there are bad things happening up there as well. 
I think most people think of the air pollution causing the traditional respiratory problems like asthma or COPD, but nothing in the neurological system, not the way that you've described it. I think it is an oversight in the minds of many people. Now we just know so much more about what's happening in any system, right? With babies now, we know that when the moms are highly exposed to air, that there's damage to the placenta so that there's a lot more growth retardation, much higher rates of autism in those kids. We know that strokes are doubled by air pollution. And as I said, the cardiovascular mortality goes up with air pollution. We're just beginning to see that any time you expose the vascular system with something which is going to irritate it and cause inflammation to the same degree as tobacco smoke, you can have the same kinds of damage that you have with tobacco smoke, the same kinds of consequences in terms of heart attacks and strokes and dementia and, and other things. So what do we do about it? Can't live in a bubble. When we're in the house and it's air-conditioned, is that at least cleaner? Is that safer? We can't live in the house entirely. On a mechanical basis, what can people do in the short term to get cleaner air? I mean, they can do a few things. You know, one of the reasons that kids are more vulnerable to air pollution is because they're running around all the time, so they breathe a lot more air proportional to the number of cells in their body. It really does help not to high degree of aerobic exercise on days when the air quality is particularly bad. And that's something that you can pretty easily identify. Most communities put out, although when there's a lot of ozone or other particulate matter fire, that you shouldn't exercise as actively. And that's one big thing you can do. Having an air filter that can filter out most of the smaller particles, removing particles down to 2.5 nanometers. That can be something that you can do and put that in your bedroom. Then you know that at least eight hours out of the day, you're going to be cleaning the air that you're breathing. The problem that we're all sharing in taking care of the planet and replanting trees and working with our governments to make sure that we're not producing these particles. Is there a sense that people are accepting the fact that this is indeed a public health crisis? It's just not something that's idle talk. It's very real. Are people picking up on the seriousness and the urgency of it? Certainly. I think the awareness in terms of climate change health impacts has increased. I don't know if people are now aware of what air pollution is doing specifically. Certainly, many more people are in certain communities. But I do think that the awareness that climate change is causing significant mental health stress and significant physical health risk is something that studies will support this, that increasingly most of the American population is aware of. So 80% of people now will say, yes, I'm aware that climate change is at a crisis level and I'm anxious about it. It's impact very differently than really just a couple of years ago. It's only like 20 or 30% of people who felt that climate change would impact them personally. Right now, about 50 to 60% of people say, you know, I'm seeing that this is something that's going to happen to my family, my kids, my grandkids. So I think that there's just much more awareness and much more sense of urgency about it. Here in Florida, people are beginning to understand about the sea level rise because there are warnings that the cities are going to be underwater. And I would suspect the same thing is happening in the discussions of air pollution. One of the things that seems to be an issue is that we want to discuss this without causing undue alarm. You made a movie, the title was And Then the Climate Changed. It was helping children understand climate change. Tell us a little bit about the movie and what the message is. First, I have to say the movie is only halfway done. We got our first set of interviews done and then ran out of funding, but we are hopeful that in the next few months we may get another source of funding in and be able to finish it. The movie is about what parents can do to help raise children who are going to be ready for the world that they're going to inherit in a couple of ways. One is to adjust to whatever impacts they're going to have, and the other is to be the kind of people that will care enough about the planet and have the skills that are necessary to respond 
respond by taking care of the place that they live. And what we did was, through my co-producer on the film, Jessica Haller, who had been in Al Gore's very first group of students when he started doing his climate trainings, we had access to some people that had been active in climate for a very, very long time, people like Joe Lieberman, who were supporting carbon pricing decades ago. We went around and we asked them, what are you doing with your grandchildren to make them able to respond to the climate crisis? And the answer that we got was basically a great question. You know, I've really never thought about what I should do with my children to help them be ready. That's kind of where we got. We got some answers from people. They felt that it was really important that you have the opportunity to nurture something in nature by having a pet, by having a garden, see that something that they were able to take care of, that they have the experience of the beauty of nature in various ways, and that they understand realistically in some degree that this is a frightening thing that parents are worried about also, but that they not be overwhelmed by fear so that they could see their parents both saying, yes, I'm very concerned about this, but I'm going to take action on it that they learn to model that. As we go forward with the movie, it's probably going to be important to train your kids in skills for disaster survival because every study out there shows that in order to get through a disaster, you need to know what a tornado is and what it does and what you should do when one comes through your community. And the same thing with fires or any other kind of natural disaster. So that helping kids to practice responding to those things and giving them a sense of self-reliance and capacity, I think will be very important. I personally think that you know many other people obviously working on this, that ideas of community justice and community participation, helping kids have the skills to be involved in complicated, contentious discussions and maintain a sense of balance and poise and working with others, even if the solutions are not immediately obvious, right, to have the frustration tolerance to say, okay, we know as a community we want to do something about this, we're not sure yet, different groups have different agendas, but we all are on the side of sustaining our community and having the healthiest place we can to live. Having kids who can tolerate that kind of uncertainty and complexity in their discussions is going to be a really important thing. And so group problem-solving exercises and family discussions around the dinner table are things that will be important. It's as important as teaching them to read and write in so many ways because it is a survival skill. It truly is a survival skill. You you can't survive a scientifically-based problem unless you have basic science skills and the ability to evaluate to live in a reality-based world. At the same time, I think that there's a growing movement, a spiritualist movement, among the religious communities around the world, and looking at spiritual reasons that this is really a moral issue and an issue of preserving the precious inheritance that we have. You you can come from different perspectives, but I think in terms of being able to really understand what's happening, a certain amount of scientific ability is really essential. I remember not too many years ago seeing pictures of Los Angeles, and it looked like it was always cloudy, and the smog was horrible, and how they've managed to clean it up so much so. I hope people don't get too comfortable to think that the problem has gone away just because the sky in Los Angeles looks better. Your work and and your words are, are critical. It is a public health issue. Elizabeth Haas is a psychiatrist in Nevada. There are some issues that need to be dealt with regarding air pollution. It does actually trickle down to our our mental health. Thank you so much for being with us. My great pleasure, Abby.